Well, hey, good morning. Good to see you here on this blustery morning, right? Yeah, uh, Skip was telling me the other day we had about 20 kids up at Rock Mountain for their snow camp. And man, you couldn't have picked a better weekend for a snow camp, huh? I mean, wow, fantastic. And uh, so um, I'm sure they got up there getting home. I'm not sure what it would have been like yesterday, but today I'm sure things will be great as they get uh, come on back and... uh, uh, to Clark Summit, but anyway, great to have you here this morning, and um, we're gonna we're gonna dive right in First Timothy chapter four. And in fact, uh, while you're at it, if you want to turn to Second Corinthians eleven at the same time, those numbers, page numbers, are for the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, underneath those chairs. If you don't have uh, a Bible, they're there, and you can turn there, have it. Uh, otherwise. First uh, Timothy 4, 2 Corinthians 11, in your phone, your tablet, your copy of the Word of God, as we look at that this morning. First Timothy, I want to read the first two verses there. Look at it with me, if you will. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, Scott just read out of the book of Revelation, referenced the last days. Here it is. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith. Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Man. The last days, that's what's coming. That's what Paul tells us. We talked two weeks ago about this uh, whole, whole business of people who appear to be followers of Jesus, um, who, uh, but are walking away from their faith uh, or abandoning their faith. Today, it's called, and that's what we looked at, deconstruction. And it is a result of what is known as progressive Christianity, a progressive theology. And uh, we also could refer, it to, refer to it as a different gospel. And in fact, the verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to look at that. Paul was afraid as he's writing to the Corinthians. Now, this is the second letter of Corinthians. We just finished 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 11, Paul is talking again. He's afraid that the Corinthian believers would abandon the faith, would walk away from the faith. They didn't call it deconstruction in the first century. They called it abandoning the faith. And uh, so he's concerned about that, that they would begin to pursue a different gospel. Look at chapter 11, 2 Corinthians verse 3, and this is what Paul says there. Chapter 11, verse 3, 2 Corinthians, but I am afraid. Paul's expressing his fear, his concern. For the believers in the church at Corinth, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different 
gospel, a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. In other words, he was, he was expressing to them his fear that they would pursue a different gospel, that they would quickly walk away. As he says, verse 3, they'd be deceived by the serpent's cunning, his deceitfulness, uh, that led astray from their sincere and pure devotion to God and grab hold of another gospel. And he says, he says, and you put up with it easily enough. In other words, it's not that they're turning away from that different gospel. They're tolerating it. They're thinking about it. They're considering it. And that is Paul's fear. Listen, folks, this is happening all over our country right now. This is what is happening. In later times, what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, have you seen it? Do you have a friend or a family member who used to be faithful, who used to be on a Sunday morning, they would have been here or somewhere else in a good, solid, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, but they're not there today? Maybe a good friend who used to be involved and faithful in serving God and they're not doing so today? This is what's happening. How could that happen? Why does it happen? Now, I want to be very careful because we don't always know to draw that line and to say these people obviously aren't saved and they never were. Well, we don't know that. That's a very difficult place for us to put ourselves in. Scripture is clear on what it means to know Jesus and for if you do, what happens to you and that your life is changed, transformed in an instant. And that is what salvation, salvation is. But sometimes it's difficult to know. And Scripture has examples of those who have claimed to and we're not sure. We talked about the parable of the sower and the soils. And how the seed took root but then died. And three of the four illustrations would seem to indicate that those people who responded to the gospel didn't really know Jesus to begin with. And as we look then, Paul continues right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as he goes down to the end in verse 13. He's talking about people who have been leading the Corinthians or giving false teaching. He says to them, for such, verse 13, are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. They look like believers. And no wonder, verse 14, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. What a, what a title. For the devil. Masquerading. He's not an angel of light. He's masquerading as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants, servants of Satan, also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Listen, I believe that these are the later times. I'm not about to make a prediction of when Jesus is coming again. The Bible doesn't tell us that. When the disciples themselves asked Jesus, he said, no, it's not for you to know the times or the hour. But we know the return of Jesus is nearer now than we first believed, right? Paul says that in the book of Romans. That's absolutely true. 
And as we look at that, it's happening the same way today as it was happening in the first century church. Absolutely. False teaching brought by false workers, false prophets, false apostles, false teachers who look like legitimate, authentic servants of righteousness. Their message has a sound of truthfulness to us. But absolutely, they are servants of Satan. And that's what Paul's concern is. So what is deconstruction? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Simply put it this way, uh, Alyssa Childers in her book, Another Gospel Destruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs that you grew up with. Now, many times, this deconstruction, as it's called, will go all the way to atheism. That's what we're already seeing happening. People themselves are claiming to be atheists who deconstructed their faith. For some, uh, they remain there in atheism. Others reconstruct and come back. But for most who do that, they're not coming back typically to the faith that they once claimed to believe that they once formerly knew before they undertook their deconstruction process. So I want to quickly share, again, there's so much out there, folks. We could spend hours, we could spend weeks talking about all of what's happening. I I want to be careful. I don't want to uh, overload you with all kinds of facts and information because ultimately what we need to know is the word. It helps to know the false teaching. But it's more important that we know the truth, right? You've heard the old illustration. The way bankers know counterfeit money is not by studying counterfeit money. It's by studying the real thing, right? By looking, by knowing, by every detail. That's what we need to do. We've got to know the real thing. We've got to know the truth of God's word. We've got to stick to it. We've got to study it. We've got to learn it. We've got to hide it in our hearts, as we're told in Psalm 119. So five signs that your church might be heading toward progressive Christianity. I trust that not one of these is true. And, and, and I came across an article actually out of two different books. I mentioned these, one to you a couple of weeks ago. The one is there, Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers. Childers, I'm not sure how to say her name. The other one is, uh, spent a lot of time doing some reading there this week, A Grand Illusion by uh, David Young. Both helpful tools, but they, but they lay out uh, quickly some signs of what it could be uh, if your church is heading towards progressive Christianity, number one, there's a lower view of the Bible. The Bible is not held in high esteem. The Bible is not respected as it was, as it should still be. And uh, this is the question of the authority of Scripture. The Bible is, folks, we believe, historic Christianity has held to the fact that the ultimate authority for those who are followers of Jesus, for those who claim the name of Christ, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, they have claimed that the Bible is the ultimate authority. We claim that the Bible is the ultimate authority for all that we believe and how we live. 
And so when you question what's going on in our culture today, in our society, in our town, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, and wonder, is this right or is this wrong? What should we do? What should our position be? We go to the truth, the authority of Scripture, period. It is not the authority of Scripture plus what other people think. It is, period, the authority of Scripture. I I talked about this two weeks ago, but we can't hear this enough because people are walking away from it because they don't view Scripture like they once did. Uh, There's a weak view of the authority of the Word of God in our lives. You would hear this kind of a statement by somebody who has taken the road of progressive Christianity. The Bible merely contains the Word of God. And that would be as opposed to the Bible is the Word of God. You see, some would say, yeah, this is a good book and there's some God stuff in it, but not all of it. Well, the problem with that is how do you know the difference? There's even those who call red-letter Christians Because you know in the New Testament, in some Bibles, the words of Jesus that he spoke in the Gospels are in red letters. And and I don't want to go into all of that, but, but the questioning of Scripture... Write down these scriptures that are there if you're taking notes. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. I'm going to come back to that at the end of our time this morning. First, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, talking about the authority of scripture, that it came from God. It is not a human book, but that's what progressive Christianity says. It's merely a human book. That's a problem. And if you're part of a church that you hear that kind of terminology, you ought to get up and walk into the pastor's office that week and have a conversation before you leave. Right? Second, feelings over facts. This has been going on in many, in different ways for quite some time now, but feeling has been elevated. You might hear experience has been elevated to a higher level of authority in the life of an individual than the fact of Scripture. That's a dangerous thing to go. Again, it's all subjective. It means that there is no objective truth. Well, that's exactly what the Word of God is. Objective truth. Propositional truth. You may have heard that terminology. God gave it to us as truth. But the folks who feelings over facts, a person's thoughts and feelings are the ultimate authority in their life for how they choose to behave for their conduct, for their practice. Something is true only if I feel it is true. That's what a progressive Christian person would say. Only if I feel, if I feel good about it and buy into that, it's good for me. Well, the problem is this is why many progressive Christians will ultimately walk away from the faith and become atheists because ultimately as they recognize what they're facing, it's either the authority of God or it's their feelings are the authority. It can't be both. And so they turn their back on Scripture. You might hear one say this, Jesus just wouldn't send people to hell. I I just can't. I just don't believe my God could do that. 
I don't feel that that's the kind of a thing that God would do. And therefore, because I have that feeling, that means that's legitimate authority. And therefore, that must be true. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, check that out later on. But it talks about the power of the word of God to cut right to the soul and the spirit to our conscience. That's the truth of the word of God as he gave it. Thirdly, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Progressive Christianity redefines and reinterprets the Bible, especially on hot-button issues today. In other words, that's why you find those who would claim to be followers of Christ who also don't have a problem or, 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 or don't struggle with abortion or, or know what's, what Scripture says about homosexuality. We're going to deal with that. I've told you that we're going to get into Scripture and see what does the Bible say about homosexuality because it says more than just what you read in the pet text of Sodom and Gomorrah. But typically, as believers today, that's all we know. We have feelings about what we think, but we don't know beyond that kind of a story. We're going to dig into that. But progressive Christianity would say, well, I, I, I can't really hold on to that because our culture doesn't, and, and we need to be relevant to our culture today. And so, therefore, our understanding of Scripture must change, must adapt. Uh, uh, adopt itself to the day and age in which we live. Um, but it's not just some of the hot-button moral issues. It's also things like the virgin birth. Are you kidding me? Really? How could that happen? That, there's just no way. That's just not what we know to be true. So anything miraculous is going to be questioned. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus. That, that couldn't happen that way. It's just too miraculous. It's just too supernatural. And that's the kind of thing that we just throw out. I just don't feel that things would work that way. And the idea would be that if we, you know, historic Christianity isn't palatable to our culture today. They're not going to buy it. It doesn't fit what you hear in politics, in our schools, in our universities. If you make our faith look and sound relevant, so say the progressive Christianity group, um, if it looks more like the world, people will be more apt to want it. But think about that. Why would they want a form of Christianity that looks more like the world? Why wouldn't you just take the world instead? But that's where it's moving. Because it pulls people away from the truth. And that's what we're recognizing. A statement that you might hear about this would be simply, the church's historic position on sexuality is culture-bound. In other words, it's all wrapped up in culture of the first or second century. That's, we're not there. We're, this is 2022, folks. And so it's all wrapped up, it's culture-bound, but the trajectory of Scripture, the direction Scripture is going, teaches us to accept all sexual expressions. Thus, the whole LGBTQ thing is not a problem because 
I mean, this is a different day than it was in the first century when Paul was writing to the Corinthians. Jude 3. The whole book of Jude, if you've never read it, it's not a long, it's just one chapter, right? Is really in defense of the faith. And this is what Jude says in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write, do you hear it? I felt compelled to write and urge you, what? To contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. He doesn't say, let that faith that's first century Christianity, historic Christianity, objective truth, let that go and grab hold of what's going on today. Because that would, no. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Grab hold of it. Number four, historic terms are inaccurately redefined. Kind of mentioned that a little bit with the uh, uh, redefining, reinterpreting of Scripture on issues, but here we're talking about actual terms that make themselves sound Christian. For instance, you may hear people talk about, as we talk about the authority of Scripture, we said, and we looked at this uh, two weeks ago at uh, 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that, that all Scripture is God-breathed, would say it's inspired. When we talk about inspiring, a, a progressive Christian, a Christian would say, well, sure, I, I, I can handle that. I think Scripture is inspired, but not in the same way or the same level as you and I would grab hold of. In other words, what they would mean that it was the same kind of inspiration that any kind of an author when he wrote a bestseller on the New York Times list. Or any kind of a musical performance. You, you, you hear a new song and the artist that sings it, it brings the house down and people are crying and falling over and it's just, oh, what an inspirational presentation. But that's not the kind of inspiration that we're talking about in Scripture. Inspiration, we're talking about God breathed. God carried along those who wrote the Word of God as we have it. And, and love, oh boy, we could go on for a long time talking about how the progressive Christianity crowd will redefine what love means because then they would say simply something like this, God would never punish sinners. He's a God of love. God could never send someone to hell. He's a God of love. Uh, it is not our job to talk to anyone about sin. Why? Well, it's our job to simply love them. Well, but that's again not what the Bible teaches us. And we need to grab hold of that. We need to make sure that we're paying attention, that we're listening closely. Because one of the deceptive things, and as Paul talked about that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the deceiving work of the devil, the, the angel of light masquerading as a servant of righteousness, it looks really good, and that's why people get sucked in to false teaching and pulled away from the truth of Scripture. Fifthly, the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. Folks, well, I can't go there. I, the church hasn't done a great job over the years at reaching out in the social needs of our communities. 
Absolutely, we ought to be concerned. The Bible commands us to, to be concerned about, to do for the unfortunate and to defend those who are, who are oppressed. In fact, I don't, I don't want to spill the beans on all of this, but uh, we got, um, Paul, is it all right if I, we got a note from uh, a missionary in France, uh, the Marshalls. And uh, they already had in one of their areas there in France where they are um, a group of Ukrainians that were already there. And now there are all, there are, I don't know, the number is just unbelievable of Ukrainians that are coming into France and they are ministering to them. And so they're looking for financial help and we're working on a plan for us to be able to do that. Folks, please keep praying. I don't know if any of you saw the clip on Fox News the other night, a Word of Life missionary in Ukraine, he and his wife who are ministering there, they didn't leave, they didn't go, they are reaching out to people who need Christ. Actually, they're in Poland and they're reaching out to the Ukrainian believers. I mean, it was, wow, I mean, what an amazing thing God is doing there in the midst of a heartbreaking situation. But the Bible does command us to do, to help and provide that. It absolutely does. But that, the social needs of our country, of our world, are not the heart of our faith. It, it, it just is not. Social activism is not at the heart of the mission of the church. The gospel is. That's what God has called us to do. Now again, that doesn't mean that we don't minister to the social needs of people. But it's not at the heart of what we're called to do. You might hear this, God doesn't require the death of Jesus for our sins. It would be unjust for God to have allowed Jesus to be killed for the sins we committed. All about social justice. That would be unjust for, for Jesus to have to die for the sins that we committed. Yeah, it sure looks that way. He became sin for us, right? He who knew no sin. So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Woohoo! Hallelujah! Huh? The core message of Christianity is the gospel, folks. And, and it's not like I don't think that's the first time you've heard that here. But people, we need to hear it over and over and over and over and over again because people who've claimed to be followers of Jesus are walking away from the gospel. It's what's happening all around our country. The gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he died in our place, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, and we can now, by faith, be reconciled to God. We can be saved and forgiven and transformed for the, for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, the gospel. That's Easter, right? Paul says... 
I delivered unto you, which was so important, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, and that's at the heart. Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because with the heart you believe and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 20. Progressive Christianity is out to destroy the very foundation of our faith. It may not always be that obvious. It may not look like it. But if you remove the power of the gospel from our faith, we have no salvation. Progressive Christianity is all around us, but it is so subtle that we often simply don't see it. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. That's a, that's a great text, the end of Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, watch out for false prophets. Because they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Paul himself warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, be careful because they will come from within you. They look good, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing kind of a thing. That's in the church. We need to be careful. We need to be watching. Jesus said, pay attention because they're out to get you and me. So what's the bottom line? How do we help those who are wrestling with doubt and unbelief? What do we do? So it would appear at times that some are too far gone. There are some who, who you can read about who actually say themselves, not somebody else says about them. There's all kinds of stuff out there in social media talking about people who have walked away, who have abandoned their faith, who have deconstructed, so to speak, and everybody else is having their, making their statements about whether they're saved or not. But a lot of the people themselves who have walked away, who have abandoned their faith, are, their faith, are saying, I am now an atheist. I have walked away. I no longer claim to be a follower of Jesus. We have to be careful to say that. We are not judges. We know what Scripture says. We can look at that. But we've got to be careful because that's so hard. We need to be an encouragement to those people. For those that we think are so far gone, we need to be crying out to God. But along the way, let me just share three thoughts here Similar to what I did a week ago, but folks, it's because what we've got to do, we've got to hold tightly to the authority of Scripture. When we come across people that are doubting and struggling and wrestling with their faith and, faith and unbelief, we've got to work them through Scripture. We've got to dig in. We've got to turn them to Scripture. Mom and dad, I understand for those of you that are parents who have teenagers or younger, they'll be teenagers. What happens many times in all the years I was a youth pastor, we, we dealt with this. You, your kid gets to a point where in their teen years they can now think abstractly and all of a sudden they're putting two and two together and they're coming up with, I'm not sure it's four. And when they begin to do that about the word of God, why do we need the Bible? Come on, what's church? I mean, why do we have to do that? I don't like that. I know friendlier people that are in my school who don't know Jesus than those who are in my church who do. What's the big deal? 
And then all of a sudden, mom and dad are like, ah, no. Have you walked away from Jesus? And then sometimes there's anger. And what happens? We shut down the question. We, shut, we don't answer the question. We get mad and angry. Why, why are you giving up on Jesus? They never said that. They asked a question. And we need to be answering those questions, mom and dad. We need to be able to go to Scripture and come up with the answers. You do believe that the Bible has answers, right? Then we better know how to look for them and go after them so that we can help our kids. We got to know the word, folks. Second Timothy chapter 3, we looked at a couple weeks ago. Verse 14, Paul says, As for you, continue in what you've learned. Second Timothy 3, 14. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the progressors are saying, how could God do that to his son? That's just unjust. All scripture is God-breathed. It's for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Folks, if we believe what we say about the authority of the word of God and that it has the answers for life, it is, it, it, and, and please, when I say that, I don't want you to think that I believe that the, the Bible is just an answer book. It is a redemptive history. It is a story of God's plan for salvation for man who has walked away from God. Here's a quote. The lady who wrote another gospel, we were talking, God has not left us uninformed, unequipped, or ignorant. He's not left us unarmed against these attacks on his truth. He gave us the Bible. Do we know it? The Bible is where we always look for answers. It's okay to wrestle with doubt and disbelief, but don't look for the answers in the wrong places. Don't go to the people who have walked away from their faith. Go to those who know the truth, who have been taught from infancy the truths of Scripture. Create a culture. We need to do that in our youth ministry. Keep praying for, <laughs> for Mitch and Emily as they look for housing. But we need to be praying for our children's ministry, our youth ministry, as we work to, to teach the truth of the word of God. Creating a culture where our people, where our kids feel safe, expressing doubt and unbelief, where they feel comfortable asking questions, where they won't be yelled at and accused of walking away from the faith, but where we can find answers answers and go to scripture secondly we need to never let go of the gospel I've, I've pretty much already talked about that but Paul talks to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 the gospel verse 18 of chapter 1 for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing that's why those who are pursuing progressive Christianity are 
writing it off. It's foolishness. Why? Because they're perishing. That's what Paul says. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, verse 19, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. We get a lot of smart people or who think they're smart today saying, ah, this is old-fashioned. Come on. Almost looking down their nose at us as, you just don't really know. I feel sorry for you that are still holding on to the historic principles of the truth of Scripture. God said, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. Remember when we talked about Corinth, there are all kinds of philosophers living there who were philosophizing their way around the truth. And that's what's still happening today. For since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And then look, verse 23 or 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. You see, people have always been looking for answers in the wrong places. Jews demand signs. The the gospel isn't good enough. What Jesus did isn't enough. Greeks demand uh, wisdom. Oh, that's just, come on, let's go. We got to get better than that. And yet then Jesus says, verse 23, or Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the gospel. Never let go of the gospel. And thirdly, keep your eyes on Jesus. And this is really the bottom line. When people walk away from their faith, when they abandon their faith, they've taken their eyes off Jesus. It's not just the truth of Scripture. It's not just the gospel. It's keeping your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 10, 23 The writer of the book of Hebrews says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he, he, he who promised is faithful. You see, God is faithful. That's who we hold on to. That's who we look to. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we quote that all the time about God's will kinds of issues. But listen to it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Listen, this whole progressive Christianity, lean on your own understanding. That's what they're doing. The writer of the book of Proverbs says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust the Lord and in all your ways submit your sin. Submit yourselves to him. Put yourselves voluntarily under Jesus. And he'll direct your paths. He'll make your paths straight. Folks, people start walking away from the Lord. Their faith, they, they take their eyes off Jesus. We need to be a help and encouragement to folks. Keep your eyes on Jesus. How do we help them if they're wrestling? Well, we've got to tell them, hold tightly to the authority of Scripture. Never let go of the gospel, but keep your eyes on Jesus. I came across this quote. Well, J.I. Packer. And as it relates to doubt and unbelief and wrestling, folks, we, we work through those answers. But this is what he says. It is not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding 
or to postpone believing till we can get understanding, but to believe so that we may understand. Did you get that? You believe. And when you believe, you'll gain understanding. But if we walk away because I don't understand, we'll never believe. That's faith. Augustine said, unless you believe, you will not understand. Wow. That's totally different than what we hear today. Faith first, sight afterwards is God's order. For we walk by faith, not by sight. God's order. Look at this as we close this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of the book of Hebrews just gave the great hall of faith, right? All those who walked by faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Then he gets to chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those guys, people, men and women they talked about in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. Don't give up. Run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, but lest we think this is all of self-effort, we have to run. No, look what he says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down, finished his work, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And here, verse 3, consider him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what he's talking to. Deconstructors. Those who are abandoning their faith, he says, consider him. Fix your eyes on Jesus so that... You will not grow weary and lose heart. Whoa, man, there's the answer, folks. That's what we do. That's where we take them. We take them to Jesus. And the progressive Christianity crowd, it's not about Jesus. It's about them. It's about man. It's about us individually. Just be who you want to be. No, the answer is be who God created you to be. We're not looking around at other options. People will fail you. The church isn't perfect, folks. This church is not perfect. People get hurt by people, by believers. People get hurt by churches. I know that happens. But we need to put our eyes on Jesus. He is faithful. He will not fail. We consider him and what he did for us and we will not grow weary or lose heart because it's Jesus that makes the difference. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. Father, My heart aches for people who are struggling and as a result turning their backs, abandoning the faith, 
and in the process have taken their eyes off of Jesus. Haven't considered him. Aren't trusting him. Oh God, I pray that if there are any that are struggling, the struggle is real. I get that, God. Help us. To be a place that accepts all people. Because we're willing to work through difficulties and doubts and unbelief and take people to Jesus through the truth of the authority of Scripture and the tell them about the gospel that saves. Father, for those of our own church who may be struggling, God, help them to look to Jesus. Help us to be ready to help one another, to encourage one another, to not grow weary or to lose heart, but look to Jesus. Sometimes there are not easy answers. God, help us to by faith believe so that we can understand. To walk by faith, not by sight. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.